Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show, the talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor. Hey, Byron and Charles, how are you? Great, man. How are you doing? Fantastic. So I'm excited to welcome the program Los Angeles Lakers legend, three-time champion Byron Scott, and CEO Charles Norris. Guys, thanks for calling. You're the authors of Slam Dunk Success, leading from every position on life's court. Byron, tell us why you wrote the book. Well, you know what? It started with uh, Charles and I getting to know each other. Uh, Charlie and I were introduced by a mutual friend of ours uh, about nine years ago, and we uh, we started to work out together and uh, really started being inseparable. I mean, working out every single day and got to the point where we were uh, – kind of known in the gym for doing these legendary workouts, uh, especially on the cardio. And we were just sitting there one day on the mat, and Charlie said to me, he said, you know, B, I think we should write a book. And at that particular time, we thought it was going to be a little paperback book uh, with, with a bunch of pictures in it, and we, we said it would be for how to work out when you're 50 years and older. And we just thought it would be something we probably just give away or sell at the gym. And uh, we we uh, went to a friend of Charlie's named Todd Smith, and, and Todd had much bigger plans for us. Uh, and we sat down and had lunch with with, with uh, Todd, who kind of told us what he felt this book can go and do. And you know, two years later, here we are with with Slam Dunk Success and something that we're very proud of. Now, now, Charles, the process of working together with Byron writing the book that must have been interesting, especially to learn the, the types of ways you guys were both successful. Uh, yeah, it was fascinating. And uh, at, at a point in time in our relationship, Byron became the head coach of the Lakers, as you know. And he invited me to work out with him at the Laker facility, and he had me in uh, coaches' sessions and uh, film sessions with the players, going to practices, and I, in turn, invited him to come to bank meetings and board meetings and uh, dinners with buyers, etc. And over time, we saw how much uh, our leadership skills and approaches were similar, and we found that asking each other, what would you do in this situation, well, was so refreshing because it wasn't another a consumer packaged goods guy talking to me or another basketball coach talking to Byron. So their their reactions, uh, the, the reactions I got from Byron and he got from me were unique uh, relative to what he was normally hearing. So we, we started to realize how much we had in common from a leadership skill. And uh, one day as Byron was talking, what also drove our decision to write the book was how many people came up to us incredulous what do you two have in common? Why are you having so much fun? Why are you working out together? Byron, you're going to kill this old geezer. <laughs> and and uh, uh, we said, well, we need to write a book that talks about leadership, but also talks about don't judge a book by its cover. And uh, we sat down and we individually put down 
all of the important aspects that we believed uh, uh, led to a, a great leader, and we were surprised at how much we had in common. And we found a great writer to work with us, and he interviewed us for 40 hours, uh, taping it, and the questions uh, uh, were lined up against the chapter headings that we had talked about. And it just flowed into a wonderful story all in first person with our voices, uh, successes and failures and what we learned. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, Byron, how do you define leadership? What is your definition for leadership, Byron? Well, my definition is, is pretty simple. I mean, like Charlie said, we got it written down in, in forms in the book and chapters that, you know, people can go through, but it's pretty simple. You know, uh, I always try to lead by example. You know, I'm not going to have my players or coaches do anything that, I've, that I haven't done, you know, and, and I want them to see me uh, the first person in the gym, the first person in the office, uh, and the last person to leave the, the, the floor, the last person to leave the office. Uh, because I want to set the tone, you know, and that's the biggest thing as far as I'm concerned when you're talking about a team is you want to lead by example first. And once you do that, uh, then it, it kind of hopefully trickle down to the rest of the, of the team and they start understanding what you're all about. And, Charles, how do you lead by example? How do you lead by example as, a, as such a gigantic leader that you are with your, your company? Well, I'll give you an example of, of one thing that I did. So I, I came in as CEO of McKesson Waterfront Company, uh, 2,500 employees, 53-odd uh, locations, and I'm uh, espousing an upside-down model where the frontline people are at the top of the uh, organizational pyramid, and I, as CEO, am at the bottom of the pyramid. So the very first thing I did, the very first decision I made, there was one reserved parking space uh, in the parking lot at the head office, and it was for the CEO. And my first action was to eliminate the one reserved parking space. The second thing I did, uh, we belonged to a, a, a very upscale uh, club in L.A., and I canceled the membership of the club because I wanted everybody to feel that senior management was no different than the frontline people. I had all of our managers every three months had to go out on a route truck and deliver half the bottles. They had to go into the customer service center and take calls from customers. Uh, everyone needed to see that we were all the same, we were all in it for the same reasons, and we wanted to hear what the frontline people had to say about the policies that we had in place, and we changed a lot of them based on that input. That's fantastic. And, Byron, would you say you're the same type of person as well as a coach, that you lead by example and show those specific things, that you're no better than everyone else on the team, that you are going to put the same amount of effort that they do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I truly believe in that and uh, also believe in treating people the way that you want them to treat you. Um, you know, Charlie knows me extremely well. One of, the, one of the best compliments he ever gave me is that I treat the towel guy at Equinox and the, the, the lady that makes my smoothies just like I treat the, uh, the, the general manager of the, uh, of the club. And 
you know, trying to get to know them on a first-name basis, to know about them as a, as a friend and try to get to know about their family history and things that they aspire to do is the things that I've been doing all my life. So, you know, when we talk about in the book asking that second and third question, um, we feel how that, that's important because you want them to know that you do truly care about them outside of the basketball court. And I do that with all my team, my team, um, my team uh, players. I do it with my coaches. Uh, I do it with the people that are the, the security guard people and, and things of that nature. So I've always felt that way uh, as far as trying to get to know them as well as you can, but also by leading by example. And, Charles, we can pick up, pick up your book on Amazon and all other finer bookstores. And where can we find information on the book as well, Charles? Um, well, first of all, it's being released tomorrow. It's going to be in every of the ma- uh, every major bookstore uh, in the country, and it will be on, as you said, uh, uh, Barnes, it, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Target. Uh, it's also going to be in. Um, uh, there will be an audio version that Byron and I narrated, and there's also. A digital version as well. So I think it's going to be very broadly distributed. You guys are fantastic. I really cannot, I have the book right here. I cannot wait to read it. And you guys definitely are able to really show what true leadership is and how leaders are great leaders. People follow their lead. And that's what you guys do. So I appreciate you guys calling and take care. Thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Thanks. Okay, see you later. All right, bye-bye. You're listening to the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter, at TotalTutor, and NeilHaley.com, and I'm really excited. Anytime we're getting close to the summer, and I need some tips. Former professional wrestler needs to get cut down, get back in shape, so I'm excited to welcome the program Authors of the cut lose up to 10 pounds in 10 days and sculpt your best body. Morris Chestnut, celebrity Morris Chestnut, and Obi Obadike. Guys, thanks for calling and excited to talk to you today. How are you? We're well, well, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. We're doing fantastic. Awesome, awesome. Let's kind of let's go jump into this. Morris, why did you team up with Obi for the book? Tell us the, or how either of you teamed up together, because both of you are very well known in your specific spheres. Obi in his training, and then Morris in all your movies and different uh, ventures. How did you guys connect to write this book? Well, basically, basically what happened, I was filming Nurse Jackie in New York, and it was so cold that winter that I, I, would, I literally would not walk out of my apartment to walk across the street to go to the gym. I, I just, I just, I'm being from California. It was just too cold. And so what happened was the director of the Best Man called me and said, "Listen, we're going to do the sequel to the Best Man called the Best Man Holiday, and I want you to be in shape, just like you never even left the football field, just like the last." Oh wow! So I said, "Okay." I looked up and I was 220 pounds. I'd never been that heavy in my entire life. Um, I, I guess just staying inside and, and eating and ordering food in and not wanting to go outside and exercise. So I called Obi. I found Obi through a, a friend that we have on, on um, a, a friend who is also in fitness. Called Obi, and I literally went from 220 pounds to the time that we started shooting the movie to 187 pounds. And that was that, that was the inspiration from the book. And people were asking me when, when I was promoting the movie, 
they would show a screenshot of me, you know, with my shirt off in the film. And people say, well, how'd you get in such great shape? What did you do? Um, people were writing to Obi through all of his social media, asking him, how did you get more in great shape? What did you guys do? So Obi was like, listen, let's put it in the book form and share it with everyone. And that's, that's what the, uh, the birth of the cut. See that that's yeah. absolutely wild, Obi. So basically, uh, tell us how difficult was the train Morris, especially when he was 220 pounds. Was he absolutely motivated to do it when you, you know first what? worked it with him? Yeah. Uh, to be honest with you, to be honest with you, it was really easy because he's a very disciplined guy, a humble guy, and then once he said once he decides to do something, he just does it. You know, so it was it actually wasn't difficult at all. I think the only difficult part was when he was traveling promoting. I think at the time he was promoting the call, the movie, the call. And, it, and as you know, when you travel, it's so hard to to, to be uh, to have healthy food readily accessible to you. So that was sometimes a struggle when I was helping him get in shape while he was promoting the movie. But um, you know, once he decided to have to get back in that type of shape, you know, he committed to it, and it was such a smooth process. But you know, the whole thing about this book is we really didn't want this book to be just about how Morris got in shape for twelve weeks. Obviously, that's the story that people understand. You know, we did a focus group on 18 people that actually went through the program over a 12-week period, and they transformed nine men, nine women. They've got phenomenal transformations, and their personal stories are featured in the book, and their best transformations are great in the back cover of the book. We had one guy that lost 117 pounds in a year named Mike Hopper. Um, his transformation featured in there on the back cover. We had a, a female who lost 30 pounds in 12 weeks. Wow, wow, Another yeah. female lost 28 pounds in 12 weeks. So these are real life everyday people, you know, who who um, really transform following this the program from the book, and and so we we that is how the cut really be- becomes alive is when the average person can actually connect with the book and not say, well, he's a celebrity, he's got a celebrity chef, and da 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 da. da. No, this is everyday real people, and you see their stories and. And it's it's really really cool. They're they're the faces of the book. In all honesty, Morris, what makes Obi different, especially as a trainer and and kind of his plan game plan compared to some of the other people you've worked with in your career? What makes it different so the average everyday person can drop that weight quickly if they follow his regimen from the book? Well, what makes Obi different is uh, it literally one of the things with the program was you can eat. We're not. The program is not restrictive in any way, shape, or form. Um, Obi, just as a, as a trainer, he's been he's the most reliable trainer that I've ever worked with. I've had trainers before, and it was like, okay, we'll show. I'll. It's literally what what would happen was I would. Uh, they would say, well, listen, you can get the you can pay per session, or if you do a package of ten. As soon as I pay for the package of ten, they're late. They're never there. Oh Obi was extremely Obi was extremely reliable, and and really the program really worked. I, I mean, literally within days, I started started losing weight, and and he was very encouraging, and he's there. He's one he's one of the best trainers I've ever had. And Obi, where did you get this regimen? I kind of also was quickly researching you on the fact that you're you're an athlete as well. So that athletes always have to kind of go into that process, not just a fitness trainer, but you were in sports that you know how important it is to get ready for that season, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I'm an, I was an athlete my whole life. I, even though I don't I don't uh, play professional sports, I'm, I'm an athlete to the day I die. I love it. I train that way. And so that type of discipline, I understand that discipline in terms of committing to something. And so 
at the end of the day, when you're on any weight loss program, it's it's really about you making a commitment to something and 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 then following through and executing. Because we can give you this, this phenomenal blueprint plan, but if you don't have the discipline or commitment, then it's just not going to happen. But I do believe that if people um, that are really serious about wanting to change their their life, their health, their lifestyle, their body, if they do take the time to follow this program, it's so easy. Um, that they'll get in phenomenal shape um, and 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 lose the weight and keep it off because we it's really we also debunk a lot of myths out there fitness and diet myths out there that people still believe are true but they're actually false and um, you'll definitely get inspired by by those transformations those people that went through the program and then you can actually reach out to them on Facebook these are real people you know real stories real transformation as the book says. <laughs> So, Morris, how excited are you about to hearing even more stories now with the book out? You know, you've heard specifically the people so far that have made these transformations. I'm sure you're excited about the next level people coming out that are listening today and they're going to take action to buy this book and, and move forward and, and getting their weight loss goals. I'm really excited. You know, it really, it, I'm, I'm truly excited about it because it really makes me feel good to see, you know, the smiles on people's faces and when they feel really good about themselves. Um, Mike Hopper. Who you know? Who went? Who lost 117 pounds? for cycling through the program three times. He couldn't even get on the airplane without the extended seatbelt. And and for now, you know, he's on the airplane. He's very excited about the opportunity. He's you know loving it. He's telling everybody about his story. And there's no there's no greater feeling just to give someone that sense of confidence to to give someone uh, that feeling of feeling good about themselves and putting a smile on themselves. So that's that's the most rewarding aspect of this whole thing. It seems very rewarding. Obi, we can follow you, but we're gonna we can purchase the book in any finer bookstore, Amazon.com. But Obi, where's the best place we can find information on you, and then we'll get Morris's info as well. Sure, uh, obiobadike.com or my um, my Twitter. You can go to my Instagram is obi obi underscore badike. My Twitter is just. Just if you just type in that first name and last name, I can guarantee you're not going to find another one. <laughs> all, all right, no, most definitely. You know, so it's a, it's a positive in regards to that. <laughs> exactly, it's a good thing. And Morris, we can follow you on social media aspects as well. Learn about uh, more documentation of stories. People can tweet you at where. Uh, at uh, Morris underscore Chestnut. Uh, well, I'm not saying Morris Chestnut official. Um, I'm I'm out there. You're out there. It was great chatting with you guys. You're motivating hey, hey, me. Hey, see the, the, the blue. If you see the blue mark and it has a more chestnut name, that's him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to see the blue mark, though. Exactly. You have to see the blue mark. A- absolutely. Well, guys, I'm going to take this to task. You're putting me, my wife and I, we're going to try to go through this program. I have the book right here in my hands, and I'm going to do it, and I'll keep, I'll update with you guys and tweet out and uh, Facebook please, you and please. tell you how my progress goes, okay? Please. We'd love please. to hear it. All right. Yeah, well, and there's a public Facebook group too. On, there's a public Facebook group for the cut for people that actually transformed already that are kind of like you know sharing their tips and things that work for them and stuff. So, um, so I look forward to hearing your progress. All right. Well, thanks. We look forward to well, your thank, thanks, Obi. Thanks, Morris. Take care, guys. See ya. Thanks. All right. Take care. Right, care. Bye bye. You're listening to the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com. And I'm excited to welcome the program, former Major League player. We all remember him from the St. Louis Cardinals, especially my flagship station, Rick Ankeel. He's the author of Phenomenon, The Pressure, The Yips, and The Pitch That Changed My Life. Rick, thanks for calling. How are you? 
I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, Rick. What made you decide to write the book? Tell me about that. Uh, the timing was right. You know, when I was still playing, I went through the throwing issues uh, and came back as an outfielder. I, I was always getting offers to write a book, and I got an offer to make a movie. Uh, but I just didn't feel it was time. You know, one one thing is that, you know, when I was still pitching and trying to make it through this, there's no way I would have been, been able to open up and reveal and talk about what I was actually going through. You know, as a competitor, or as an athlete, you know, professional athlete, you're always taught to – have that game face and not show your emotion and not let people in and see what the, and see what's going on exactly. inside. Uh, yeah. So I just wouldn't have been able to do it, you know. But now, now that I'm done and I'm done with my career, you know, I'm able to reflect and look back and and understand that, you know, one of the things too is when I went through the throwing stuff, I couldn't find literature on it, and nobody really wanted to talk about it. Well, I understand also that, you know. There's people in other walks of life that go through the same thing. I remember getting letters from people and writers and announcers and, and, and NFL kickers and dart throwers. You know it. You name it. People that went through the same thing. So, you know, if I can use my voice to share my story to inspire those people who are going through something similar, uh, then, it, then it's all going to be worth it. And, and Rick, in your career before you uh, went ahead and had that, that pitch that you could talk about and specifically how you had to go and change your career into a hitter, uh, before that happened, what, tell our listeners out there, you know, what, what were you expecting as a pitcher? What did you think you would end up accomplishing in the major leagues? Uh, you know, when I was a young pitcher, uh, before I went through the years, I, I thought I, my goal was to be one of the best ever, if not the best ever that that ever played the game. I was the number one prospect, uh, in the country out of high school. And, um, you know, even moving through the minor leagues, you know, there was nothing that, that would say any different. I dominated the minor leagues, you know, I was the number one prospect in baseball. Um, you know, my rookie year, especially that last month, you know, I developed a change up to go along with my fastball, and my curveball, And, you know, it just made me that much dangerous. I was, the, you know, the best pitcher on our team that last month, and that's why I got the nod to start game one of the playoffs against the Mascot Greg Maddox. Um, so here I, I just thought I was on my way to the to the top and, and, and hoping to stay there forever. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, I, I had that game in the playoffs and, and throw that wild pitch, and, and uh, you know, all of a sudden things just spiraled out of control. It's a scary, frightening thing. You know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm – Doing living this life I've always wanted and worked so hard for to to not being able to play catch with a guy that's sixty feet in front of me like I've just forgotten how to do it. it, it definitely, uh, and that pitch. What 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 do you think in your mindset after that happened? What what, what was the situation? I I interviewed somebody before that blew a game ser- seven series of the American League Championship Series uh, for the Kansas City Royals, and he talked about you know how losing the Yankees and and how certain pitchers deal with certain things. But how did that? What what happened in your mindset after that happened? Uh, you know, the, the biggest thing. I was so young that I really didn't even understand. You know, the full, I didn't understand what was happening. I definitely didn't understand what the next four or five years of my life was going to be. Um, but the biggest thing in game one was, was just that I, that I had let everybody down, not only myself, but my teammates. I mean, we had a really, really good team. And, you know, I felt like if I could have done my part, um, that we would have had a chance to go to the World Series and possibly win it. And just that feeling of letting everybody down and, and not being able to, to do what you've always done, um, you know, in between the game one start and the game two, game two start of the playoffs, you know, my, my bullpen session was lights out. So I thought I had this licked and I was going to be done with it. And then game two starts is the same thing. I just started to unravel, started launching balls off the backstop. And now all of a sudden, 
you know, my heart's racing 100 miles an hour. I can't slow my thoughts down. I'm looking down at my hand. I can't feel the ball. My arm is numb. Uh, and, and, you know, even though every pitcher and every hitter, we all have keys to get us back on track, whether it be keep your weight back or lead with your elbow, whatever it may be, everything that had always worked for my entire life was no longer no longer worked. Nothing was working. I couldn't understand it, had no idea. And then, you know, I about and then going into the next year and all of a sudden, every time you, I even think about throwing, I had to start to almost have an anxiety attack. I mean, it was, it's dark and it's ugly and it, it consumes you. It, it's terrible. It's definitely seems like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dark time. And then basically what you're saying is from that, that process where you weren't able to pitch anymore, what made you in the mindset to say, I want to become a hitter? I mean, because a lot of pitchers, once that happens, it's over. Um, you know, I, in 05, I walked into Tony Russo's office and just said, hey, I can't do it. I came back and pitched in 04 and pitched successfully. But what it took for me to do that you know, was all-day mental training. I mean, from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep, I was just a robot of a person. I couldn't joke with guys. I couldn't have fun. I looked like... It's almost like when you see a horse in a crowded area and they put the blinders on his eyes so he can only see yeah, forward yeah, yeah. down. That's what I felt like, and that's not who I am. Um, it, you know, and I just tried to look into the future and say, if this is what this is going to be, this isn't healthy. And, you know, four years down the road or five years down the road or whatever it's going to be. And I knew I had to make a change, so I, I quit pitching, retired from pitching, went home. It was actually my agent, Scott Boris, called me not even an hour after I was home and said, hey, are you ready to go play? I remember saying to him, ready to go play what? Nobody listening to me? I just I just retired from baseball. And he's like, no, to be an outfielder. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about it? Um, and I said, you know what? I got to think about this. So I hung up. A few hours later, you know, I'm sitting there. I'm trying to visualize what this might be and what it would, what it would be like, what it's going to take. Uh, and then I imagined myself hitting a home run back in the big leagues as, an, as a position player. And as soon as I visualized that, I called him back and said, look, I'm in 100%. He called the Cardinals. Cardinals called me and said, we're in 100%, show up tomorrow, and now you're an outfielder. And the thing about it was, as soon as I retired from pitching, I felt like I had this giant weight lifted off wow. of me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I could actually have fun and breathe and be myself again. I didn't have to think about grinding all day to throw strikes, and then the challenge became fun. Uh, I knew it was a long shot. I mean, nobody in the world was giving me a chance to make it back as an outfielder. But, uh, you know, I think that just fueled me even that much more. It definitely seems like it. It's like it's like you decide once that weight's lifted off your shoulders. But Rick, how does that help you in life now? Because that was such a pressure for you, and then you decide to pl- you decide to come back and be an outfielder, and the pressure's off you. Did that change your life in so many ways? Because I mean, of how I guess intensive yeah, a pitcher you, know, you were. Now, yeah, yeah. now moving forward, I mean that was so hard, and it's definitely the hardest thing I've ever been through. You know, now anytime I face a challenge or whatever, I know I'm going to be able to handle it. There's nothing that's ever going to be like those four years that I had to battle that. I felt like I was in a mental prison, like I was stuck. And it, and it just it consumes you, your thoughts, your actions. Everything you do is revolved around, am I going to be able to throw a strike today or tomorrow? Am I going to go out there in front of 50,000 people and be bouncing balls off the backstop? It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. So moving, you know, the courage that it takes to do that, uh, moving forward, you know, now I know anything that's ever put in front of me, I'm going to be able to, to, to find my way through it. So, Rick, what are you doing currently? Uh, I'm a sports analyst for Fox Midwest here in St. Louis. So, you know, it's great to be back in, in front of the St. Louis fans. You know, I was here for 11 years, and uh, they've supported me through thick and thin. So it's nice to be able to 
to get on TV and, and share my vision and, and tell the people about what I see watching the game. And, uh, you know, look, I played, I was a pitcher and an outfielder, so I can talk about both sides of the game and give my perspective on that. And that's what's fantastic about it, Rick, is the fact that you uh, have that opportunity to be a Cardinal, always a Cardinal. It seems like certain organizations treat you so well. It's great to be part of that organization and continue uh, to follow the Cardinals and be that person to give. You know, that must be a great blessing yeah, for it, you. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. You know, I mean, there's so much tradition and history that come along with the Cardinals. So to be a part of it, um, you know, it's a special thing and something I'll always appreciate. All right, Rick, where can we uh, find information on you? I know we can purchase the book in all finer bookstores for sure, and especially on Amazon. Uh, but where can we find info on you, on your book? And, and, uh, and you, yeah. And then my Twitter handle is drickankiel. T-H-E-E. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thanks for calling, Rick. Best of luck, and thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Have a great day. All right, take care, Rick. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com, and I'm excited to welcome the program Eugene Simon. We know him from Game of Thrones, now uh, genius. Uh, Eugene, thanks for calling National Geographic's genius. I'm excited to chat with you, and this is such an exciting uh, project. Don't you think so? I mean, I, I look forward to watching this for sure. Thank you very much, Neil, for having me. I appreciate it. And yes, you're absolutely right. I've just come from the uh, the premiere last night in Los Angeles, and I was then the premiere in New York watching the first episode. And um, no, Ron Howard, uh, Brian Glazer, and of course, Jeffrey Rush's Albert Einstein have done an absolutely wonderful job. I'm a very lucky man to be playing Edward Einstein. Very lucky indeed. Absolutely. And uh, uh, just to kind of talk about, again, this is uh, uh, the whole thing about... Uh, learning more and more about Einstein's life. It's such fascinating as a young, uh, when he was young too, to kind of learn about how he grew up and what made him who he is, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a show that will jump between essentially two time zones. First time zone will be Albert Einstein played by Johnny Flynn in his uh, early, uh, in his formative years, in his kind of early to late, tw- early 20s to mid 30s. And then it'll jump to Jeffrey Rush's performance, uh, you know, in his kind of 45 plus years. Um, and I play the role of um, Albert Einstein's second son. Edward Einstein, who, um, uh, amongst other things, was a very gifted musician, a very gifted uh, aspiring psychiatrist who uh, absolutely adored uh, Sigmund Freud and all of his writings, uh, but unfortunately someone who suffered very heavily from schizophrenia. Oh, wow. Okay. So, again, so, and and this, we're going to kind of learn about your character in a way, dealing with Albert and how possibly how Albert acted led to to some of uh, the schizophrenia and stuff, you think? Kind of having a father that uh, brilliant? Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. A lot of um, the two episodes that I feature in, as Edward Einstein, episode five and eight, and really um, the discussion, the kind of subject matter of particularly episode five is to do with this idea of the pioneering years of mental health treatment where people didn't fully understand the disorder that they were dealing with. You know, were they dealing with multiple personality disorder? Were they dealing with bipolar disorder? Were they dealing with schizophrenia? And it is about how 
Edward Einstein, because he adored Sigmund Freud and his psychoanalytical attitude to mental health, it's about how he tried to use his intellect to sort of psychoanalyze himself out, out of the abandonment and the trauma and the neuroses that he felt had been thrust upon him by his father not being there when he wanted him to be there. However, unfortunately, in real life, um, Edward Einstein ended up in Burgosley Insane Asylum um, for pricked from it from 20, year, 20 years old for almost the rest of his life. Oh, on and off. wow. And in there, it is believed, yeah, it's very unfortunate, and he underwent hydrotherapy, electrotherapy, insulin therapy, you know, all of these horrible treatments um, that often made it worse for the patient. Um, and in brief, it is very possible, it's believed that he met Carl Jung when he was in Bogota Insane Asylum. And as you will see in episode five, there is a lot about how Edward meets Carl Jung and discusses his father and his mental illness. Wow, it's very interesting. And I think uh, to go and look at Einstein's life and then just talk about your character and just to know the effects he had on his family is just fascinating because we all think of Einstein as, you know, what he was able to to discover, what he was able to create, not, you know, he he had a regular life like everyone else, Eugene. And I think that's this is what this story is about so that we'll learn about all the characters that are around Albert and how Albert reacted on a day-to-day basis, not just in his work. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Neil. I mean, you, you will be very startled by how uh, you change your view of the kind of Albert Einstein that we know sticking out his tongue in front of a chalkboard cover covered in mathematical theory. You know, this is a man who, who um, married out of wedlock in his years, had a daughter, never saw that daughter because she died or is believed to have died at his pursuit. He then married the woman he, that he, uh, he had a daughter with, had two boys who no one knew almost anything about, had a very difficult marriage, got divorced, moved away from the family, leaving his children behind with their mother, became uh, you know, the physicist that we all know. Divorced again, remarried to uh, his cousin, Elsa Einstein. I mean, the story, the, 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 the personal drama of Albert Einstein's life is worthy of a hundred books. And in this series, we will attempt to cover as much of his life as we possibly can. And the, one of the great inspirations for doing this series was the book written by a man named Walter Isaacson who yes. recently released the biography of Albert Einstein. And I recommend reading it, actually. It's a wonderful book. All right, so it's all going to happen uh, tonight. It starts out, so you're going to be in later episodes, So, but you're going to be really tuning in because it seems like there's a lot of... Th- this cast is gigantic. Right for the whole the whole series. Yeah. I was on, I was on IMBD checking yeah. that out. It's a gigantic cast of people. So different stories, different storylines based on the time period and the certain characters that Albert dealt with in his life. Right. Yes, absolutely. I think there are roughly around three hundred cars. <laughs> Wow, my gosh, wow. And and these are very, very talented people of the 300 you said that were cast, right, for this, for this, uh, for, for this They're series. They're wonderful people. I mean, the actors, the, the actors have jumped in to play characters that, um, you know, they, they've uh, had to rather like me just dive into and do research given the amount of time they were offered. And um, I have seen footage. 
routines that has just completely blown my mind. I mean, I can say with as much objectivity as possible because I'm only, you know, I'm not in all the episodes. It is absolutely staggering. It's visually such Alright, so everyone needs to tune in April 25th, check out and follow Eugene to find out when his episodes are going to air, and the best place we can find information on you, Eugene, is where can we go? We could check you out on Twitter and stuff, all, all the different well, social media? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, if, you look, if you'd like to follow me, um, first of all, go onto Twitter, and you can find me at Eugene underscore Simon, so that's on Twitter, and you'll get lots of updates about Genius there. And on Instagram, you can just find me on one word, Eugene Snap, and uh, I'll be happy to. Um, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you guys there. Absolutely. Well, Eugene, best of luck. Uh, good talking to you. I know a lot of other projects. Soon, Game of Thrones again. Yeah, it just all come. You just continue to stay busy, don't you? Absolutely. No, <laughs> keeping busy is always very good. All right, take care, Eugene. Thanks for calling, man. See you. Okay. Thanks bye-bye. so much. Oh, sorry, you're welcome. Bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com, and I'm excited to welcome the program from the Houston Texans, DJ Reader. DJ, thanks for calling. How are you? Oh, no, thank you for having me. I'm doing good. Fantastic, DJ. Now, that's awesome. Talking about it, your whole life, did you want to be a football player? Was that something growing up that that was a dream of yours? Uh, yes, sir. You know, from a young age, I just I fell in love with the game. wasn't able to play when I was real young because you know they got the weight limits and stuff. So, got into middle school and fell in love with it. Um, played two sports my whole life, growing up playing baseball, and then just got to college and really just knew I had a chance to play in the league, and it was just a big dream from then on. Well, it seems like it definitely uh, was a big dream for you, DJ, and it's something that, you know, when you have that dream, you have that mindset of what am I going to do? What am I going to try to do to make it? So tell us some of the things you had to do training-wise to be ready for the NFL, especially when before going to – once you got to college with Clemson and stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, my dad always preached to me when I was young, there's no substitute for hard work. So, I mean, it's a lot of hard work that goes into it. And just being a, being blessed along the way, I mean, uh, just having people push me and never giving up on the dream. And don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. So, I mean, I've always had a strong head on my shoulders and determination. I just knew where I wanted to go. And Everybody has bumps and bruises along the way, but you can't let those knock you down. So, I mean, that was one of the things. Just having mental toughness to be able to play and work out as much as you can to get to this level. So that mental toughness that you have to get to the gym, you have to start lifting, you have to uh, make sure that you're in the right shape for for the game, That those things you learned from your father, it sounds like. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then, you know, just – not giving up you mean people are going to push you and strength coaches do their job along the way but it's always extra work there's always somebody doing more so you know you always got to push yourself to that limit and then know when to rest yourself and just be smart about it and so during that 
during your life, uh, the, one of the important things it sounds mm-hmm. like that your father was such a great mentor to you. Did he tell you also about how important it is to hit the books in school as well in that process of your oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. My dad was a teacher, so, I mean, grades were really important in my house. Um, my dad's a teacher and my older brother's a teacher, so, I mean, grades were no we, – we had to have good grades. So it was something that was really important. It made recruiting a lot easier in high school. When you had good grades, it was easier for you to get noticed because coaches didn't have to worry about certain things going on or dealing with the clearinghouse because you were able to go ahead and get that part out of the way. And then it makes things easier on the field. You're not worried about – Oh, I gotta get this such and such down for class. If you're on top of it, then you're on top of it, and then you can go and you can focus on football. So, what did your dad teach uh, in in school? Was he a high school teacher? Uh, my dad was an elementary school teacher, actually. Oh, really? Uh, math teacher, and then he became a principal. Yes, sir. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I was an elementary school teacher as well uh, before I moved on to owning owning a tutoring and consulting company. So that's very interesting. And then a principal. So, DJ, you, discipline, definitely an important part in the home for sure and a- academics and education. And I, oh, yeah. and, and I think that's fantastic because that's going to help you after football. It's going to help you in the process of oh, yeah. understanding what you're doing. And I think that the NFL looks for people like yourself that are um, understanding and are willing to learn, especially organizations. They say, Hey, this is the kind of thing when you go through this interview process and stuff that they're saying, Oh, wow. He's a great character that we want on this team. Yes, sir. And it's, it's definitely a big thing. Uh, my dad actually homeschooled me until sixth grade. So Got a lot of one-on-one attention with him having him as a teacher, so it was really big for me. Absolutely, and uh, and again, uh, one of the stories that I've been reading about DJ is that you did did lose your father, and that really inspired you after that time. So, if you'd like to talk a little bit about that and share that with our listeners, oh yeah, oh yeah, um, you know, losing my dad was real tough on me. Um, it actually happened the day before my twentieth birthday, but. Uh, it was just one of those times where it kind of caught me off guard, but I knew that he had taught me well and gave me great core values. And my mother was there, and she's a very strong woman, very strong individual. And, you know, it was just time for me to step up. And he's always taught me that, you know, things are going to happen in life that aren't always going to go your way, and you got to control what you control. And, Having my dad leave so early in my life, you know, I was just, I just look back on the times I was blessed to have him, you know, have him around for certain things and have him teach me certain things, just have a great mentor in my life like him. So I thank, I thank God every day for having him in my life. But, you know, I try to honor him every day that I live now, even though he's gone. And that's what strives you every day to continue to uh, reach your highest potential on the field and off, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, my dad was a a super hard worker, and, um, you know, he pushed me and he pushed himself. You know, he came to Greensboro with nothing and built a family, and I've always respected him for that. So I just – that's what I try to live up to every day. So talking about your experiences at the University of Clemson, what was your greatest uh, Mm -hmm. achievement or greatest moment playing for Clemson? Uh, I think just playing the national championship, making it to the national championship for us the year before this year when they won it, just going out there after everybody told us we couldn't do it and 
just being consistent as a program. I think that was the biggest achievement for us. Every year we were there, we were 10-plus wins and growing with your brothers and going out there and then finally your senior year making it to that national championship, to that step, to that pedestal. Even though you came up short, you went through the whole season undefeated. Everybody tried to knock you off, whether you were home or away, and you made it there. And it was a big accomplishment for us. And just having everybody against us every time we played in the bowl game. I don't think we were ever the favorite to win any of the bowl games I've ever played in. And I've won every single one except the national championship. So that's something where you said I not. I think that was the coolest thing about being at Clemson. Yeah, definitely. And wouldn't you agree also what great what a great fan base Clemson is? Especially Death Valley and everything. Oh, yeah. Explain oh, that to the, how awesome it is. Amazing the, fan base. Yeah. It's an amazing fan base. I mean, we couldn't ask for better fans. There's there's nobody better than Clemson fans. They they kind of support you always. Our fans on we don't have fair weather fans that I see. They always support you and um even after football, your fans are always gonna still love you there. Um, it's a small school, I mean, compared to all the other schools around, but the fans and the people who go to Clemson really fall in love with it. It's no taking Clemson out of it. So from that process going on, did you think ultimately your chances in the NFL, especially when uh, your your season was over at Clemson and you're looking at the combines and everything like that, you had that dream and that belief that you were going to make an NFL team, correct? And in that whole process. So tell us that story yes, of of what people were thinking you would end up doing and how you've able to accomplish and play for the Houston Texans. Um, I think, you know, just hearing what I heard coming out of the combine, I was going to spend most of my career in a backup role and just not really see the field much. And, you know, I just – like I said, it went back to that, those things that I control, and I just kept my head down and kept working out. I never really ever let people define what, what goes on in me. You know, I end up coming in and keeping my head down, just being a rookie, listening to those guys like Vince and JJ, just listening to what they had going on and following them behind them and just being consistent. Um, I think that helped me a lot, not being mentally strong and being consistent. And I was able to find my way on the field and ended up starting eight games and you know, now I'm stepping into a different role this year and trying to become a better player every year. So, I mean, that process was, was amazing. I mean, it's also good to hear your criticism. Everybody told me, I mean, in the draft, you heard things that you should work on and why they don't have you here instead of as opposed to here. So, I mean, you take the good and the bad and, you know, you shake out what you can shake out. And at the end of the day, you just got to go out there and be your player and, and play as hard as you can. Absolutely. And that's what you do. And you also are helping people off the field as well. So, DJ, can you talk about what you do on um, off the field to help others? Uh, off the field, you know, I do a lot of stuff with um, helping with the homeless, especially around the Houston area. Um, I also started a scholarship in my dad's name, and we give it out every year to students who are interested in extracurricular activities, and we try to help them out with, a small scholarship that just started a couple of years ago. And then um, right now we're building our foundation to work with um, back home with getting kids. Cause in North Carolina, they have a rule that if you graduate high school and they cover your tuition, but on that other side of the rule, there's no, people don't notice that books and living fees and all those things aren't covered. So my foundation is more geared towards to working towards building money so that, 
not only is tuition covered, but we can also give grants and help out with living fees, um, book fair, book fees, and all things like that, and get, be able to give kids a stipend so that they can live in college and not just be another kid in college who doesn't have money and can't do certain things. Well, you're a tremendous role model for sure, and you're you're leading by example just going into your second year in the NFL and what you're able to do already and hopefully bring that atmosphere to the Houston, Texas organization, and you are willing to learn to be successful on the field, but you're showing it off the field to the organization, and that's fab- fabulous, and when you talk to kids, they're going to say, oh, okay, you believe in academics. You believe in it's important for a good education, but also you are striving on the field. So that's fantastic, uh, your story for sure. DJ, where's the best place we can find information on you? Or you want, um, people can check you out and stuff like that to learn more about you. Where can we go? Uh, yeah, you, I mean, you can follow me on Instagram at DJ Reed. Um, we're still working on building the website right now. So, I mean, that's in the play right now. Um, and that's really it. I mean, I use Twitter. I don't really use it as much as I should, but um, I'm really on Instagram. I put things out there. Fantastic. It's great to always take pictures of others, right, of things you're doing or working out or things like that. Well, then oh, when yeah. you have to figure out how to shorten characters on Twitter, it's it's not the easiest thing in the world. Like, you, yeah. you, 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 you want to expound on things. Yeah, they only give you 140 <laughs> characters. You want to have a conversation. They only give you 140 characters. You got to get a little more. <laughs> All right, well, DJ, good talking to you. Best of luck in the next season. and Fantastic. And uh, if you're ever in Pittsburgh when the Texans play, we'll have to, we'll have to connect sometime and have a, a television interview. So thanks again for calling, man. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. All right, take care. Bye-bye. See ya. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter, at TuttleTutor and NeilHaley.com. And I really enjoy talking to people from People Magazine, Uh, just really get excited about their newest issues and really like the fact that they're looking at the whole person, not just their beauty, but their inner beauty as well. So I'm excited to welcome the program, People Magazine editor, Mary Green. Mary, thanks for calling. How are you? Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, Very exciting week here. People magazine. You've got to be so excited. Anytime these big issues come out, how how much of a buzz is it in your office, especially before it's released and people can see what the cover is going to look like and all that stuff and the public? It must be crazy. Oh, it's absolutely insane. In fact, uh, this is one of two covers that we annually, this, this issue and then The Sexiest Man Alive, where it's top secret. Um, most of the staff doesn't even know who's on the cover. So there's a lot of scurrying around, um, <laughs> people racing around, and yet trying to keep the secret. So it's very exciting. Yeah, when you keep that secret, that's, that's the thing. And did you, did you know before anyone else who was going to be on the cover and all that stuff? I was one of the fortunate staffers who, who had been able to, who were in on the secret. Um, I worked... A little bit, very tangentially, <laughs> on the story itself. The story is really, really done almost entirely by Jess Cagle, the editorial director uh, at People and EW. Ah, all right. All right, so for our listeners out there that have not, again, it's the, it was available on the 19th, to update us specifically enough about who's on the cover, and then we'll talk a little bit about what will be in the issue. 
great. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, so drum roll for people who have not seen it yet. Well, who's on the cover for people? So, it, most, yeah. it is Julia Roberts, our five-time most beautiful woman. I mean, you got to say, when you think about world's most beautiful woman, the way her just basically, the way she carries herself, the way she's able to exemplify beauty in natural terms for so many years in this business is unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. Um, We were looking back to her very first cover um, right after Pretty Woman, and uh, it's remarkable in a way that she looks almost the same. She's just as beautiful now. Um, if not more so than she was back in the early 90s. It's just incredible. Um, And yet, in the way she's grown, the way all of us, especially under the intense spotlight that she's been under, um, all of us watching her, really, really, really exemplary. Absolutely. And uh, what what should our uh, listeners expect in this issue, Uh, especially learning about Julia, some surprises? For sure, right? In the, in the interview, oh, so many times being interviewed. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in particular, this year we we really celebrate um, a lot of diversity, both age, ethnicity, um, background, people from all walks of life, etc. I think that there there is something for every kind of reader. Uh, people will enjoy the the photography in the issue is beautiful. It's it's what magazines were made for, to just sit and with a cup of coffee or a drink and rifle through and just stare at the amazing photos we have. Uh, amazing. And then um, basically to find out about it. What do you think the theme of this year is in, uh, on this cover and stuff? Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would actually say beauty at every age um, because we, we have – people in here um, from their early 20s all the way through their 80s. Um, and I think that that's always been one of the, one of the best parts. Um, this year, uh, I thought the team did a terrific job of looking far and wide for examples of every type of woman to celebrate. And then I don't, what else do we expect in the article? I saw Fabulous Faces of 2017. There's pretty interesting names in that, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. You have everyone from Oprah Winfrey, Reese Witherspoon. Um, so, so some of the names are pretty familiar. <laughs> um, and uh, you have Emma Stone, of course, the Oscar winner, Michelle Williams, um, as as well as people like Janelle Monet, uh, who had a huge breakout year in 2016, um, Viola Davis. Uh, so we're we're Chrissy Metz. Um, we're getting a lot of fresh faces, I think, in the issue this year, which is fun. And of course, my favorite section every year is always without makeup. The the women who pose without a drop of makeup on. It's spectacular. Uh, kicked off by Minnie Driver. Yes, for sure. Yeah, now Vinnie, just, I mean, that is, I wonder what her beauty secrets are, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Um, Well, you know, she stays fit, eats healthily, and also I think that (laughs) you can never discount good genes. (laughs) 
Hey, and, and especially in keeping yourself from being so stressed in this business. And that's that's a big uh, part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And for many, this is someone who's um, had a two-decade career and bounced around a lot from project to project, TV show to TV show, um, and she's managed to keep it all in perspective. And she's just right now she's she's at the top of her game with Speechless, so she's just oh yeah terrific. What an opportunity she got with Speechless, and what a great show when you talk about diversity. I mean, for special oh. special needs to just the story of oh my, it's just awesome for a lot of uh, people, especially not seeing them in a wealthy wealthy home and the struggles they go through. It's just an everyday family that has a special needs child and how many is able to handle it as a mom. It's a little different than any other mom. So it's like, it's a mom on television. You wouldn't expect, but yet what she goes through in the story is just amazing. And I think that there's just the, the, the people must be so excited of having a show like this on, on television. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a hilarious show. And <laughs> Minnie is, <laughs> Her character is not always the most likable woman, <laughs> yes. uh, but you kind of understand where her fierceness and sometimes difficult difficultness <laughs> comes from, uh, which is her incredible love for her kids. Um, she just she walks that that fine line really really well. It's just very funny. So what we should expect is I see that we have an essay on aging, rescue me, beauties and their pets. We talked about uh, not a drop of makeup, forever beautiful, uh, and uh, my beautiful family, and much of other, much much more. Where's the best place we can find information on you as well as the magazine, so that people can check it out and find out? Uh, I go online right now uh, to check out the latest issue and how they can go pick it up anywhere in many uh, magazine places all over the all over the country and the world. Where can we find info on you? Absolutely, absolutely. If you go to people.com, you'll get a a really fun tease about the cover story and some of the the features inside. And then, of course, in any airport, uh, grocery store, etc., please stop by and and pick up this this newest issue featuring Julia Roberts for the fifth time. (laughs) Are you on Twitter, Mary, so people can follow you? I am on Twitter. It's Mary Green 1969. Okay, well, fantastic. I'll make sure I follow you on Twitter, <laughs> and when we get this out, indication, I'll, I'll be tweeting you out. So be ready for your phone to be blowing up. Okay. That would be great. I look forward to it. All right. Well, thanks, Mary, for calling, and really a great issue. People need to pick it up. And thanks again for calling. Take care. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. You're listening to the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> 